Hello, everybody, and welcome to Young Persons Radio here on Radio Free Brooklyn. I am your host, Colby Smith. This and every Sunday here on this great station of ours. And joining me, coming out of retirement for one last <laughs> job, is... <laughs> Noted hitman, former guest of the Jerry Curl Chronicles here on Radio Free Brooklyn, uh, and now the host of the podcast Detoxicity, uh, which is a podcast exploring the nature of masculinity. It is, of course, a Mike Joseph. Hey, Colby, what's happening? You did say that I was the guest of the Jerry Curl Chronicles. I was actually the host of the Jerry Curl Chronicles. Oh, my God. I'm losing it. I'm losing it's, it. It's all good. <laughs> but anyway, you're here. Uh, this is your third appearance on the show. People it know is. you from uh, uh, the first episode where you proclaimed 1984 the greatest year of music ever, I think. And now, and now there is a book about 1984 being the greatest year in music ever. Uh, I it came don't know out. What the title is it's no, it's called "Can't Slow Down." It just came out in December. Yeah, and it just talks about all of the different uh, types of music that kind of coalesced and made 1984 a really great year for pop music and the radio. And and were you you were not alive? No, oh, not not by a couple years, but uh, but yeah, <laughs> I was well, alive. I was there. So let me tell you, Colby, <laughs> it was a great time. Are you at all jealous that or that you didn't write that book? I feel like it's in you. <laughs> Am I jealous? No, because I have other things going on. I, yeah. I, I feel like I could have written that book, mm -hmm. but I'm not mad that I didn't write that book. I mean, I also know the person who wrote the book. Oh, okay. Uh, so you can't I, like, we're not going to start a feud here. Oh, there's already, we, we're, we're, we're on record as not particularly liking one another. <laughs> uh, I... I yeah, I mean, I, I I am acquainted. I've met the person that wrote that book several times. Okay. Uh, and uh, while he is certainly qualified to write the book uh, and did a good job, the book I think is pretty good. He's just not somebody I would hang out at a party with on purpose. Totally. Yeah. So Indeed. Uh, obviously it's been almost a year since, uh, live music has been able to happen. Have you been feeling the strain there? Were you like a big, a big show guy before all this went down? Or is there like a, a big change in your social life has happened as a result of the deadly coronavirus? I was a big show guy more so because of my job than because mm. I enjoyed, it was a little of both. I do yeah. enjoy going to shows if I like the artist, um, or if like a buddy of mine is playing, I, I was starting to really get into going to comedy shows mm. at like Bell House or, or Union Hall or, or those places. Um, so, and on top of that, I'm a fairly social guy. I uh, typically would hold game nights at my apartment and have people over and do all sorts of stuff. So just in general, from a social perspective, things are a little bit topsy-turvy. Right. Um, do, do I miss shows? Kind of. <laughs> um i don't miss I'm, I'm also a short person so <laughs> I, I don't miss having to like jump or tippy toe over the three people taller than me that are in my direct vicinity yeah um i i don't miss overpriced drinks well yeah that's... i don't miss uh i don't miss forgetting to wear my earplugs <laughs> so you take the good you take the bad yeah 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 there are positives and negatives to not yeah. being able to go I, do you I miss it. I, I, I definitely go through days where I like, I, it's just like, man, I can really go for going to a show tonight. You know, uh, it's not every day, certainly. Um, but, uh, but I, I do miss like having that as an option to do, you know, I feel like 
you know, like, like a lot of people, you just like, you keep your eye on a handful of venues that are like either close to you or that artists you like to seem to go to, uh, with great regularity. And then, you know, just like being able to dip into those every so often was like, uh, uh, it, it made me feel like part of a scene, you know what I mean? Just like out on the town, like uh, got my finger on the pulse of what's going on, which like for a person like me who likes generally terrible music, it's like fun to feel that way. <laughs> it's all relative. That's subjective. I am sh- you mentioned Elton John. Elton John isn't terrible music. That's true. I mean, I'm, it's refreshing to hear you say that, Mike, because, you know, depending on who you ask, you know, there are people out there who are just like, you know, if it happens before the year 2000, like, sorry. <laughs> Which, I mean, I'm almost the opposite. I am yeah. a fan of music from the 70s, 80s, and 90s more than I am a fan of post-21st century music. Uh-huh. But that's just because I'm old. Well, I was going to say, do you find that that's because, like, that's like that's the music of your youth? Or is there, like, are there factors that you could point to that's like, okay, music is different now because X? Music is different now. It's, uh, when I was a kid, Everything didn't say I, I sound like a total old man. And I, <laughs> I know I said it. Well, I'm setting you up. So it's my fault. <laughs> Everything sounds the same. Uh-huh. There's no melody. All the singing is done through auto tune or, mm-hmm. or other time, other types of software. I mean, and I also like I grew up in the late 80s or early 90s when they were starting to accuse people of of using technology to improve their voices like Paul Abdul and Janet Jackson and right. like those folks. Little did they know that 30 years later, <laughs> we'd be in an even worse situation than we were in then. Um, yeah, it's just, it, it, so it, and it's not music in general, it's music that's played on top 40 radio. Sure, sure. It's kind of universally sucks. Like there's a couple of people that I, I'll hear and I'll like, uh, like The Weeknd is okay, mm-hmm. and Taylor Swift is okay, but the majority of stuff, I hear on the radio these days is just and terrible. Yeah. And you would point to like the technologica, the technologicification of, <laughs> of like how music is like recorded and, and generated. I think that's part of it. I think yeah. there are a lot of people who make music now that are not in it for the art. They're in it for sure. the paycheck mm-hmm. uh, or the notoriety. Yeah. Um, and I just, you know, and I'm a huge hip hop fan, but there was even a musicality to hip hop that doesn't exist in commercial hip hop in 2021. Mm. Uh, So it just all feels like, and I try to justify it by saying, you know what, Mike, you're in your forties, you're not 20 anymore. This is what 20 year olds like, you're not supposed to like that. But when I was in the eighties and nineties, I still liked the Beatles and and the Rolling Stones and and, and all that stuff. And you could kind of draw lines that would correlate. Right. You know, from that to the music that was popular in the 90s i don't think you can really do that now yeah i mean i it does not seem that way to me at all yeah yeah Yeah. so yeah i mean again i realize that that sounds very old man of me but i also think that i kind of have a point (laughs) (laughs) look i'm not gonna tell you don't have a point mike i'm not gonna have you be a guest on my show and just throw pick, pick shade me apart, at you Kobe. yeah exactly well you one of the things that i think as far as like i think this is true of like a lot of uh a lot of like genres of music but you mentioned hip-hop made me think of this as well is that you know sort of the the local scene is kind of gone from the music industry just because like 
everything just everybody just has their band camp you know and just like wants you to point to their like band camp or their soundcloud or something so it's just sure. like the internet kind of took away like the, the idea of like a local scene happening even like with something as in person you would think as live music you know yeah and, like bands and that kind of thing so like um i don't know is there do you find that that has come into play as well absolutely there there is no it, well there's two things at play one is there's no more monoculture so there's no sure. thriller there's no mm-hmm. purple rain there's no uh bodyguard soundtrack or anything like that that like everybody gets a piece of everything yeah. is super splintered super niche um and the other thing is that there's no real local there's no miami hip-hop there's mm-hmm. no la hip-hop and you know when i was when i was a young man <laughs> every place had a, a form of music that sounded different you could say oh right. hey um the other thing actually is uh the deregulation of radio so mm-hmm. it means there are no more local radio stations because i i remember as a, as a preteen or as an early teenager Every summer, uh, my grandparents had a house in uh, Lehigh Acres, Florida. And we would get in the car in New York City and drive down to Florida. And each state, you would hear like different, like you'd hear the biggest hits, but they also had like a local flavor. And, you know, you would, stuff would get big out of different parts of the country. And some people had to catch up. Um, like that doesn't exist anymore because now yeah. we have Spotify where everything gets popular at pretty much the exact same time. Yes. So yes, everything is popular at the same time and none of those people are getting paid. For- yeah. Well that, that too. Yes. And they're getting paid 0.00065 cents per stream. Per stream. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I want to go back to that thing you were saying about like different parts of the country <laughs> sounding different. Um, and I, I recently watched the documentary about Linda Ronstadt that's on, mm. on I think it was on Netflix or, or Amazon Prime at the time. And um, there's a big section at the beginning of the documentary that is about the the open mic scene at the Troubadour Club in LA in like the late 60s, early 70s, where it just like, um, uh, like Jackson Brown was hanging out and like David Crosby and just like all these people who you associate with that like Laurel Canyon sound were there and it's just like the idea it's just like the idea of having a sound that is specific to a region of the country much less one club you know <laughs> it's just like it's so foreign to i feel like people's experience of of listening or to, to discovering music now not that that's like bad or anything but it does feel like there was a generation that was just like you know, and they all talk about it in the documentary. That's like, okay, we came from our parents' farm in Iowa to like be a, like hopefully like be a pop singer, you know, like at this club. And it's just like, that's why you hear the difference in like, in like the music or whatever. It's just because like, if the choice is between continue to get up at 6 a.m. to work on the farm every day or like try and do this other thing, like there's a, there's a desperation, I guess, or like an urgency to the music that I guess is like, is, is not the same as, as now broadly speaking. I, I would agree with you there. I mean, yeah. there's no, the hustle is different. Mm. All, you have to just, you get on SoundCloud or you mm-hmm. get a TikTok and yeah. you try to make yourself viral Whereas in the past, the way to make yourself viral was to fly halfway across the country and become part of a scene. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, is there, I, I feel like the, I don't know if this is just like a, a 
like romantic idea that I have about like how how like music comes about and like 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 or I guess art in general but it's like the idea of the scene if you look at the history of art is just like so important right it's like everybody kind of knowing each other and like uh, kind of competing with each other but also kind of being friends but also wanting to absolutely destroy each other like like in the charts and just like that seems to be the history of like what making good music or like good literature or whatever is like it's like that's where that comes from and like with the internet kind of spreading all that stuff out like i don't know if that same thing can be replicated online i don't know the jury's out yeah the jury i mean it, it, it's it's hard to say mm. I, I couldn't tell you i mean I, i'm just in my head now trying to think of three or four really really influential artists musicians that have arrived in the last 10 years yeah um, and I, I, I'm sort of drawing a blank. Yeah. Influential is an interesting way of looking at it too. Cause I feel like that does just kind of like, I feel like the influential people are like the producers that just like, like, like make everything themselves, yeah. you know, they work on everybody's albums, you know, right. like the people who really are the biggest and like the lasting stars, it's like Lady Gaga is coming to mind. It's like, she is like an iconoclast. Like she's not there. There aren't a bunch of Lady Gaga like imitators, right? You know, um, I mean, I'm sure people would call her an influence, but like not in the way that like you can see it in the career. You know, I think I think there are people. I mean, she she's still. This is again like an old man comment. Like she's still kind mm-hmm. of new, but she's been around for probably 12, 13 years. Yeah. Um, I do think that whatever the next crop of young female artists are going to be like Lady Gaga will be an influence, but also let's not forget that influence sort of trickles down. I mean, Lady Gaga was heavily influenced by Madonna. Yeah, Um, that's true. Yeah. So I, I I think we will get there. I mean, I definitely think she is one of, you know, her and Kendrick Lamar and Kanye and, you know, maybe a handful of other artists are, you know, are going to be the people whose influence lasts into you know 2030 or 2040 or you know the same way that we talk about michael jackson and prince and madonna and whitney houston today yeah and we're back to 1984 right yeah this book by your enemy (laughs) he's not my enemy he's just he's 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 somebody that i would not have dinner with on purpose yeah yes yes (laughs) i totally hear you Uh, i don't have i don't have enemies well, are there are there artists like contemporary artists who you listen to, Mike, that you're that you that you find yourself like drawn to, in that same way? There are, yeah. there are. I mean, I I, I love like uh, I think Tim Impala is great. Um, I love Lizzo. Yeah. Um, I uh, just trying to like mentally scale like down the the, the music charts. Mm-hmm. There, there are the modern day musicians i probably listen to more modern day music than the average 44 year old person (laughs) yeah Um, well yeah i was gonna i was gonna ask you how what your strategy is for like for for keeping up on stuff because i mean i look i i you you know the conceit of this show i am not a cool person (laughs) (laughs) i have been upfront of that about that for years (laughs) but cool is so cool is so subjective that's true. That's true. Like, if I think you're a cool person, you're a cool person. Mike, thank you. I know you didn't say you think I'm a cool person, but it you're felt cool. like you were getting there. <laughs> I, I don't, 
I don't like uncool people. Hell yeah. That's what I'm talking about. So, yeah. I mean, I, I'm fortunate, A, to have a job in music, so I get exposed to new music that way. Right. But I also have music nerd friends that yeah. are aware that I'm a music nerd, and I'll get a text saying, hey, Mike, have you listened to this? And I'll be like, no. And they'll be like, well, check it out. You might like it. Or somebody will post something on social media and compare it to something. I'll be like, oh, I'll check that out. Yes. See, what you are, what you are arguing for, Mike, right now is... There is nothing better. Spotify, Discover Weekly, be damned. There is nothing better than a friend who knows your taste. Yeah, nothing better because I, I try with Spotify, but Spotify sticks everything into very specific genres. Yeah. And I am not that kind of music listener. So like, I like, you know, I like Kendrick Lamar, but I like Dave Matthews Band. I also yeah. like Metallica, you know, and I like the Jackson five and temptation. So it's, I want to hear all that stuff in succession. I don't want to have to go to one playlist for my alternative <laughs> rock, one playlist for my hip hop, one playlist for my R and B, one playlist for pop music, one playlist for country, so on. Yeah, totally. I, I don't know about you. I, I find making playlists for myself exhausting. <laughs> how, how Do you, do, do you have, do you, does it, I feel like there are people out there who like, who like love, like they curate their playlists. They're like, this is my 2020 playlist. It's like all my favorite songs from this year. And I just like, I don't know. I just, I find it very exhausting. How do you, uh, do you make a lot of playlists for yourself? I do not. So again, this is old man Mike punching in. <laughs> I, I buy the overwhelming majority of the music that I consume, whether yeah. I buy a CD Mm -hmm. or I buy something on iTunes. Um, so I have a pretty large iTunes library. Right now it is, I can tell you exactly. And there's, this is probably like half of the music that I own. So my iTunes library currently is at 31,455 songs. <laughs> Hell yeah, dude. <laughs> Fucking and, go off. <laughs> and, and that's as someone who deletes out of his library every song that he rates less than three stars. Wow. Okay. So this is a curated. It is a curated. 31,000. Yes. That yeah. is impressive. Because like, you know, I feel like you could, I could rack up those numbers just like buying album after <laughs> album. Shit I never listened to. That would be a good project, Mike, is just for me to go through my iTunes library and see how many of these songs I've never heard before <laughs> that I own that are mine. <laughs> there, there, there's definitely, there's gotta be some there. There's some there for me. There gotta be some there for you too. Yes. Uh, so you, you still do a lot of physical media. I do when I can. Yeah. And if it's not cost prohibitive, I, I do a fair amount of physical media. I like owning shit. Yeah. I, I mean, know. you've also, you have not been to my apartment, but it, and I say this with no exaggeration, kind of looks like the inside of a record store. <laughs> I so, mean, that sounds nice. <laughs> There, there's a lot of stuff here. Um, so I just, I grew up buying records. Yeah. Um, I understand that buying albums, whether physically or digitally, actually ensures that more money gets into the artist's pocket yeah. than streaming it. And I just like owning shit. If something weird happens with the internet, if Spotify gets deregulated somehow, I still have all my music. Man, I totally feel that. I, I have like, I got a closet in my... Uh, apartment that's just like blu-rays like <laughs> cds records and it's just like i have hauled this stuff all over this fucking city and i'm not giving up now <laughs> see it's weird because i'm so not like that with movies 
Okay, I interesting. I think I still have like I have I might have like ten DVDs. Okay, um, all right. Well, you know, we, yeah. we we had to part ways somehow. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, we were agreeing. Even... We were agreeing too much until now. <laughs> Some people are much more uh, cinephiles than I am. Yeah. 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 Um, but no, I, I I feel that about. I I just like I like having my shit around. You know. Like it's the same. It's like the same impulse that leads me to like a buy to buy something on vinyl and just like keep it in my little shelf or like buy the CD or whatever. It's just like yeah. I like looking at it. Yeah, it's all there is. I mean, I'm the same way with books. I, yeah. I a bunch of my friends have been like Kindle, 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 Kindle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I like books. I don't want to read a book off of a computer screen yeah. or a phone. Yeah, yeah, heaven yeah. forbid. Yeah. yeah. I'm reading I'm reading a book on a PDF right now cuz uh the, like the the book is like not out yet and I'm like interviewing the author in a couple weeks. Uh sure. little promo folks for <laughs> an upcoming episode of YPR. We're going to have Lauren Euler on the show. Uh plug plug. <laughs> yes. Um and yeah, it's just like I I just think of all these like oh I could underline this or I could make this note for the interview and I can't do it and it's just like, you know, it's it's a it's a way different um like part of your brain I feel like that's that's activated. Yeah, I agree. And I, you know, I, I, I have not personally been published, but I have, there's at least one book that quotes me. Okay. So if, if that was an ebook, it would be kind of shitty, but it's a real book and I can actually flip the pages and open it and like see my name and show it to people. Give it a plug, Mike. What's the book? So- uh, it is called Michael Jackson, The Man and the Music. It is written by uh, Dr. Joseph Vogel. It is a uh, uh, um, a second version of it came out the, in 2019 to celebrate uh, the, well, not so well, I don't know if you celebrate somebody's death, to commemorate the 10th commemorate anniversary. Yeah, to commemorate the 10th anniversary of Michael's passing. Um, it originally came out, I want to say maybe 2012, 2013. But hmm. yeah, it's called The Man and the Music, or maybe it's The Man in the Music. I can't see from here, but it's a good book. That's awesome. That's a good plug. Yeah. Uh, do you remember the first record you ever bought? The first, so the first, I so I when I was a little kid, I used to have stuff bought for me. Yeah. Um, and I remember, I think the very first record I, I ever had bought for me was Ebony and Ivory by Paul McCartney and Stevie Wonder. Yeah, totally. Um, the first album uh, that I bought was Off the Wall by Michael Jackson. Um, and Thriller had already been out at this point, probably like a year, maybe like a year and change. Yeah. But we, we did not have Off the Wall. So I, it was either Christmas money or like money that I'd stolen out of my own piggy bank. Yeah. And it's like, oh, I want to buy, this is the album I want to buy. So yeah. Yeah, I just remember the cover of Off the Wall being like so fun looking. <laughs> like, yeah, it's so cool. It's just very cool looking. I think I probably saw it in like my mom's record collection or something, where it's just it's like the brick wall one, right? It's yeah. like, and he's like it's, in a tuxedo. It's that oh one. yeah, you got it there. You got it. Mike <laughs> Mike has it on his wall behind him. Uh, yes. Everybody. Uh, so, but yeah, it's just like there there is something to like a good album cover that's just like so inviting and that is part of what you lose i guess on 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 the the digital side of things yeah what was the first album you bought colby okay so the first definitely the first album i received was um a part of a burger king promotion 
in which I got the Backstreet Boys Black and Blue. <laughs> wow. On CD, like with a Happy Meal. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Like, I don't know what year, whatever year this was. Let's see. That would okay, have been so like 2000. 2000. Yeah. Except, wow. That's, I'm impressed, Mike. That's, it's exactly 2000. I was working in a record store in 2000. Okay. Okay. Which one? <laughs> was it in the city? It was, I was working at, uh, for all the New Yorkers out there who remember Nobody Beats the Wiz. Uh, I was working uh, initially, well, in 2000, I would have been working in the Bronx. But, okay. Uh, yeah. That's awesome. So you do, yeah. I, my, okay, I would love to talk about New York record stores for a minute because- Let's uh, talk about New York record stores. My first trip to the city, uh, I was like, it was just like a family vacation. We did like all of the sightseeing and everything. Um, it was 2004. It was like fall 2004. Virgin Records was still in- Times Square, right? And mm-hmm. we're st- we stayed at the Marriott in Times Square, the Marriott Marquis, the like the one with like in the insane elevator in like the middle. <laughs> and I was like, oh, we gotta go to Virgin Records. We go to Virgin Records. It's like all you remember. It's just like all of the floors. Oh, yeah, it's just like I loved that store. Goes and goes and goes. And I was like, this is the happiest place. <laughs> like this Fuck is the- Disneyland. This is Disney World. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, fuck Disney World. This is the happiest place on earth. (laughs) Seriously. And it's just like, it just, it's a, it's the kind of place that like, obviously like does not exist at all, where it's just like this towering monument to popular music. And I just remember being like, this place is awesome. And I didn't go back to the city for uh, for years, probably. I mean, you know, uh, we went back again for, I think my dad ran the New York Marathon uh, several years later. And like, we all went for that. And it was already gone. (laughs) Like, like, it just got snapped up in a in a flash. And I feel like I watched that 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 um, that Tower Records documentary, Mm -hmm. and they talk about the Virgin Records closing in it. And and that there's like two big change just being this like bellwether for Oh, the industry is in trouble. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, Tower Records, uh, there was a Tower Records location on West fourth street and broadway mm. and when i was a kid when i was a teenager when i was in high school yeah uh, that was the place that i would go and, and i i couldn't even i could i was my allowance was criminally small i couldn't really even like buy records but just to go in there and like walk around and look at everything was 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 amazing yeah um and there there really are no places like that anymore unless you go to uh la and mm. go to Amoeba Records, which I think is probably the most awesome record store, like still standing. It's but, so cool. You know, you, yeah, you take that for granted when you're young, and then you know, not you don't think that it's going to go away at any point. Oh, totally. It's like I feel like this is the theme of my life in so many ways, where it's just like being, you know, being exposed to something for the first time and being like, oh, it will always be like this. <laughs> Less the great lesson of my young life, and this is why this is the final episode of Young Persons Radio. Because I, <laughs> I'm just kidding. It's not. It's uh, but you're gonna but, it's turning it into old persons radio now. Yeah, exactly. This is me becoming an old person. Is realizing that these are fleeting moments, and we have to do our best to recognize them as they come. But uh, anyway, without getting too you know uh, 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 wistful here, Mike. Um, Tell me about the shops that you worked in. Yes. 
Um, so I started off, uh, I, I, I was a Tower Records employee from 1993 to 1996, uh, worked at uh, two different stores, one on the Upper East Side, one on the Upper West Side. And, uh, you know, the Upper West Side store was great. It was right by Lincoln Center. It was on 66th and Broadway. And um, the coolest thing about that store was the fact that I think it was ABC, CBS, ABC. Mm. I think ABC studio was like right around a corner. So it was, anybody... what, what was the, what was the intersection? Uh, 66th and Broadway. I think that's ABC. Okay. Yeah. So we would get celebrity customers. I mean, Paul Simon, uh, wow. Tony Bennett, uh, Peter Jennings, may he rest in peace. Um, I, I, now I'm drawing a blank. Alec Baldwin. Uh, and I forget the Kim Basinger. Uh, LL Cool J. Like tons and tons of people would just kind of pop in. And, and this was their local record store, either right. because they lived in the area or because they were just on live with Regis and Kathy Lee or, you know, Good Morning America or something like that. Yeah. And they just come in afterwards and shop. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, so it was crazy. Uh, and then after Tower, I worked, uh, The Wiz was, if anyone has watched an episode of Seinfeld where the characters are at Yankee Stadium or some sporting event, and you look at the advertisements, you will inevitably see an advertisement for The Wiz. Uh, the Wiz was uh, uh, um, like a precursor to Best Buy or Circuit City, mm. where they were really an electronic store, but they sold a shit ton of music. Yeah. Um, and I uh, I worked there from 96 to, oh, they went out of business in 2003. And I worked there until the last day. Yeah. Uh, managed a couple of stores. Um, you know, and again, like it was just kind of a good time. It was still, the record business was still a pretty big deal. Mm. People were still buying CDs and even cassettes. Um, you know, so it was just, it, it, it was it was fun yeah. for the most part. Um and then, you know, I sort of transitioned uh, out of that into more like back office work and, mm -hmm. you know, eventually slid into, you know, doing what I do now. Um, so, you know, I've worked in music since I was 17 years old. Wow. That's 27 years. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah, man. That's really cool. Well, the it, I don't know if this is true. Like, I have not done the research on this, but like people uh, um, in the music industry tell me that the industry has sort of like slowly moved out of New York as time has gone by. Is that true? I don't know about that. Uh, the yeah. industry really exists in three cities, uh, New York, Los Angeles, and Nashville. Mm. And I would say maybe to a somewhat lesser extent, Austin. Gotcha. Um, I feel like if you want to get noticed as a musician, you probably need to be in one of those places. And if you want a music industry job at um you know like a booking agency or a, a label or something like that you've got to be in new york nashville or la there are still mm. a ton of music industry jobs in new york you know all of the publishing companies are based here mm. um you know a lot of the labels have offices in both you know both new york and la actually in new york la and nashville at this point um, you know, New York is definitely still an epicenter. You know, LA is more the film industry, film and TV. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I think New York is still more music related. Mm. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, it feels like now we're in this, this point where uh, people are really re-examining 
the whole idea of like needing to be in a certain place it feels like like the tech industry is like running out of san francisco right now and they're just like they're yeah. they're they're going to these cities that no one even like looked at for for 20 years and it just feels like every time you read the times there's just, just like another article that's just like austin's where it's at now guys <laughs> like <laughs> i think part of it is just because there's so many ways to work remotely yeah like you don't need to be in a physical you don't all being in a, there are certainly benefits to working in an office. And if I had my way, I would prefer to do that most of the time. But unless you're a a doctor or yeah. a teacher or someone who is like face to face and has to do like face to face work with people, I do as much work, probably more work, uh, sitting at home with my fucking shoes off, being comfortable, yeah. than I do sitting at a desk with people hovering over you all the time. <laughs> You know? Yeah, I mean that is one thing about this is that this setup kind of kind of works for a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I worked from home. Uh, there was a, a seven year period when I lived in Boston, and we did not have an office in Boston, so I worked out of my house. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a, I'm accustomed to working from home. Um, you know, if I had my way, I would probably have a little of column A and a little of column B. Yeah. Um, but uh, certainly my productivity does not suffer at all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when it comes to, to working from home. I mean, for me, it's like just knowing that, uh, uh, or I don't work from home anymore, but when we did, uh, just knowing that I could make a lunch I like. <laughs> Why were you, were you ordering lunches you didn't like, Colby? Well, you know, it's like whenever you're, whenever you have to go to a place, it's like you're kind of bound by the places you can get to in the half hour. That's true. <laughs> that is true. Um, also, I just did a little bit of research and I want to correct the record here. Um, uh -oh. the first album I think I, I got was also given to me, but this was as a gift. This wasn't from Burger King. Um, this came out, I'm looking a couple months before Black and Blue. <laughs> so I think probably the first album I ever owned was Aaron's Party by Aaron Carter. <laughs> Whoa. How how old are you? Uh, nine. All right. I mean, I, I guess we can give you that. Mm -hmm. They had a that album. I think had a cover of that song. That's like, ain't nothing gonna break my stride. Oh God. Ain't nothing gonna hold me down. <laughs> Good old Aaron Carter. Yes. <laughs> well. I want to go back to talking uh, a little bit about uh, live music, which is where we we started this conversation, Mike. Um, yeah. Are you up on the Save Our Stages drama here in New York? I am. What is going on with that? I find it very difficult to parse. I do not know for sure. Like, I'm sort of peripherally keeping an eye on it because yeah. a lot of my friends work in the live music industry. Totally. And, you know, when... When... Every, when the world is COVID free or primarily when shows are allowed again, mm -hmm. I want my friends to have jobs. Yeah. Even more so than I want to go to shows. I want my friends to have jobs. Right. Um, <laughs> so I don't totally know what's going on. I do know that there is, I don't know if it's a federal grant, uh, but, mm -hmm. but there's, there's something going on where money is being laid out uh, to sort of keep venues, to keep local venues around so right. that, you know, everything isn't Madison square garden or, you know, uh, some sort of big, bigger venue for bigger artists, right? So that local places can kind of, uh, you know, keep doing what makes New York great. 
Um, but beyond that, I, I haven't been following it too closely, so I don't know exactly what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it's interesting to think about what the, like how much good it's doing because, you know, on the one hand, like I, I saw the news, I'm sure you did as well on, uh, one day last week where Anthony Fauci told some like performing arts conference or something that he was estimating if everything goes to plan that, live music could happen safely by fall of this year is what yeah. his estimate was. Now, obviously that's, you know, we can't take that as, as a solid truth. And, you know, the way things have gone so far, it's like, you definitely can't count on that timeline, uh, everything being okay. But it's also just like, I mean, that will be a year and a half of no income at all for these places. It's like, okay, live music is safe now. Where is even left to go see it? Right. We don't know. <laughs> right. Yeah, because venues are, I mean, if you can't pay your rent, yeah, you're going to close. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I do have faith that if things close, other things will reopen. Right. Uh, but it is a weird place to be in. I mean, uh, yeah, people can't see shows anymore. And it'll, let's say best case scenario, it is October. That is, yeah, that's a year and seven months. Mm-hmm. With yeah, and these places are making no money unless they happen to be a bar that's also a venue. And even in that case, you 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 know you're making a fraction of what you right. used to make before. So it's going to be difficult for a lot of folks. I mean, I I hope that things become a semblance of what they were. Uh, but you know, because art and culture and music is so important to everything that that, that we do. Um, but I, I'm curious to see, you know, I'm certainly no financial wizard, <laughs> yes. um, and, you know, my knowledge of government is probably not great, but I, I do hope that there's a way for particularly some of these smaller local venues to, mm-hmm. to stay, uh, in place. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, it's sort of related to that. Um, there was a, I'm sure you remember this as well. There was a, there was a bit of a viral news cycle um for like a couple days earlier uh in the fall i believe where the head of spotify was asked in an interview about the low amount of compensation for artists and like like per stream and just like you know that whole area that we were talking about before and his response was that the old model of putting out an album every two or three years uh just doesn't fly anymore and artists should, you know, consider putting more music out if they want more money. <laughs> Did you see this? Do you have I a saw that. to this? I, yeah, he needs to shut the fuck up. Uh, <laughs> I mean, creative people, like, that, I mean, that sucks the cre- creativity out of people, I think, when you're doing stuff on a schedule. Like, if you're putting out an album a year, because the only, when your only impetus for putting out an album a year is to make money and not mm-hmm. because you have all this creative juice coming out of you, you're, I mean, you're not gonna end up making money anyway because people are gonna be like, this is awful. I'm not gonna stream it, buy it, whatever. Yeah. And some people can do that. Prince could put out an album every year. Um, you know, but also, totally. you know, Elton, yeah, you know, Elton John used to put out an album a year and after a certain point, his album started to get pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, I'm the biggest fan you could imagine, and I would agree with that wholeheartedly. Yeah. 
Yeah. But it's just like it takes a toll. It takes a toll on people. I mean, I think right. it feels like, you know, popular the, the popular music industry is not new. You know, like we have we're at this point where artists of today have the advantage of people having gone before them, having made the mistakes that they now know to avoid. And right. we've kind of all agreed to settle on this model of like every two or three years here's the next album from the pop star you like or the band you like or whatever right. it is and that seems to be the middle ground of you know we have to fulfill this thing because otherwise you know there are also certain people who would just tinker with stuff endlessly and never put anything out um versus you know i i want to take time to make this thing good uh, so it's like, why are we messing with this? Like, it's it's a, a system we've perfected already. Seriously, seriously. And the other thing that that does is it, it for a lot of musicians, making music is their job. Yeah. Like, it is what they do for a living. It is what they do professionally. It's not a hobby. I mean, it can it can be your hobby and your job. But it's also sure. like a job. This is it, they're not dilettantes. Like this is the way that they make their money. So if you are saying, well, you know, you're, you're the only way to make more money is to make more music. You're devaluing the artistic part of it, mm -hmm. and you're turning music from this like beautiful artistic thing into just something that's like a, a means for a check. Yeah, yeah. You know. And as a listener, like, I don't want to hear, I don't want to hear, and as much as I like the manufactured pop music of my youth, I don't want to hear a song that sounds like somebody cashing a check. I want to, you know, I want to feel it. Yeah. You want there to be like that spark. Right. I want there to be an emotional experience. I mean, I, I hate to like throw shade like this, but you know, we saw a major pop star put out two albums last year in the same year. Mm -hmm. And the results were not so hot. <laughs> People like that. I mean, I am, there are a lot of reasons that I am not the world's biggest Taylor Swift fan. I mean, I sort of, <laughs> lots of I reasons think she are is, available. Yeah. I, I, I basically think she is Karen in musical form. Um, <laughs> but I mean, I, there are people who like those albums uh, and, and bless them for doing so. Not my thing. Yeah. But, you know, at some point, she's going to burn out. Yeah. You yeah. Know? And then she says she's re-recording all of her old albums, too. I think she's going to get to a point where she's like, fuck this shit. Yeah. Like, I want to take a vacation. Seriously. I mean, that whole thing of just like, like, I don't know. I don't know who that's for. <laughs> you know, Like, like, yeah, like there was this whole legal thing. And, and, you know, you don't have the rights to your back catalog or like the recordings of her back catalog, I think is what it is. Like she has right. the IP, but like she doesn't own the recordings anymore. So I understand like why she wants to re-record everything and put it out. But it's like, we've got them already. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, she might have a large enough amount of fans for her to eventually turn a profit on that stuff. Sure. But it's also kind of like, why do it? I don't know. I don't, I don't want to hear uh, you belong with me in a different way. I want to hear the yeah. original version if I want to hear it. It's different. It's different like like singing your old hits in a concert is like is giving people what they want in a very direct way. Like they came to see you sing that song. So like you're going to sing it. But sure. like but like, you know, she was 18 when she did that song. She's 30, 31 now. It's yeah. like, it's a it's a very different thing to put it on record and then put it out again, in my opinion. Right. I mean, take lesson from the police. The police 
made Don't Stand So Close to Me, and then they made Don't Stand So Close to Me 86, and it sucked. <laughs> so, so again, remaking that, your popular songs is usually not the smartest yes, thing to do. Yes, and that goes back to, you know, what we were saying before. It's like, people have made these mistakes before you, and <laughs> we have to learn from them. Where do people you... always think that they're going to be the no, ones no, that reinvent the wheel? It's not going to happen. Yeah. No, I was saying people always think they're going to be the ones to reinvent the wheel. It's not going to happen. Yeah. It's just like, it'll be different for me, though. <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you go to read about music, Mike? Ooh. <sighs> um, there's no... There's no swear by place that I go to read about music. I, I'll go to rollingstone.com. Yeah. Uh, I go to Vulture, um, which I think is is really good. I go to Pitchfork. Yeah. Um, uh, spin.com. I, I sort of just kind of like flit around sites. Yeah. Um, and it's really just to to catch up on music news. I stopped reading reviews ages ago. I stopped reading reviews before I stopped writing reviews. <laughs> please um, say more about that i i mean i just i, I got to a point i mean i have I, i've had bylines uh uh you know i wrote pretty steadily about music for like a, i'd say like a 10-year period yeah um and if you look if you google search my name uh you will find music reviews uh and it got to a point say maybe 2016 2017 where i was like New music doesn't hit me the same way. And I trust my own opinion on stuff better mm -hmm. than, and my friend's opinions on stuff right. better than I trust some random person's opinion. And I, I've, I've gotten to know a lot of music critics, including the person that wrote that 1984 book uh, over time. And I don't want any of them recommending music to me. <laughs> Like a lot of those like music and cultural critics are just like, I, I, I hate to say this, a lot of them are horrible humans. Sure. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and I also think I finally hit the point where I was like, you know what, musical taste is subjective. Mm. I, I, I got to a point where I was like, I'm not going to write a negative review about something because like my cup of tea is not your cup of tea. There are people that like the Black Eyed Peas. Do I think a certain way about them sure but you know what if you get your jollies off of my humps more power to you <laughs> it is not my place to say that you have horrible taste in music <laughs> so it just goes more like yeah i don't feel like writing about new music anymore it's just it's not you know not yeah. worth it i mean is there any I, i've 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 talked to like to like people who used to review books and that kind of thing and, and they, they they have like they've it, one one person in particular i'm thinking of told me that he stopped reviewing books because the industry changed to such a degree that it was so hard to put a book out that he felt guilty about like giving a bad review to like a first or second time novelist unless it was like a huge hit and in which case the review doesn't mean anything anyway right you now um so like do, have changes in the music industry fueled that opinion of yours or or has it just kind of just purely personal yeah it's personal that actually never occurred to me yeah. that i would be potentially taking sales away from someone if i wrote a bad review 
uh, because my mindset then was I wrote a bad review. It's because your album stunk. Uh, (laughs) um, I mean, I would look at that differently now. And again, it goes back to the whole subject subjectivity thing. Um, Just because I like something doesn't mean it's not valuable to somebody else. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't feel comfortable like I don't feel comfortable saying something is the best something anymore because my opinion and your opinion are equally valid. Right. Right. So and that's just kind of what took me out of the uh, uh, review writing business. Yeah. I, I the People talk about this with movie criticism also, you know, like they talk about like, Oh, like why was Pauline Kael so great for the new, for like the New Yorker. And it's like, on the one hand, it's like, she was a one of a kind talent, but like also the movies were there to support, that kind of sophisticated writing and sure. kind of going back to what you were saying at the beginning, like if the music's not there to, to it, it, like bad, you're not going to write a good review of something that's like on a level. So below that, you know? Right. I, that's another thing to consider when I was, when I would write a bad review of something, ultimately it ended up not really being about the music because you can't say much more, about bad music then this is bad music it ended right. up becoming like jokes and cracks and stuff like that just to fill up space yeah yeah um you know so i that that didn't make it worth it either it's like okay we all know a kevin federline album is bad <laughs> and you can't really say much more about about it than kevin federline album awful that's right. it four right. words <laughs> You know, why am I going to try to come up with 696 more? It doesn't doesn't make sense. Yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Are there um are there pieces of writing from that period that you are like especially proud of? Oof. I would have to think about that. I'm sure there are, but I have not looked at my own music writing in a long time, yeah, so your body I, I would have work. to get back to you on that. I mean, there is so the last stuff I did uh, there's a site called ultimateclassicrock.com. And mm. in 2017, I think, on the anniversary of Prince's death, they did one review of a Prince song a day for 365 days. Oh, that's um, really cool. Yeah. And I did, I want to say I did like 10 to 12 of them. Um, and some of those, I mean, some of them I just kind of shit out because I had a deadline. Yeah. But, you know, there are others that I think are, were really, you know, soulfully written. I mean, and for me, it's not <clears throat> the same way I think about music. It's not about the best, best singer or the most, you know, the most proficient singer or the most proficient writer. It's about is what's being written or what's being sung. Is that going to make me feel something? Right. And, you know, I, that that is what attracts me. So that is what I try to put across in my writing. Like, I don't think I'm the best writer in the world, but you know, what I do write, I try to write with, with honesty and with, with feeling. Right. Right. Cause ultimately, I mean, you want, it's just by the same token, like you want the reader of your piece to feel something, you know? Yeah. 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 You know, all that to say, you can tell when I'm doing something for a check or because I'm running on a deadline. <laughs> all right. I'll Google everything afterwards and try to pick <laughs> out which pieces. <laughs> um, the thing you were saying about uh, not necessarily the most proficient singer, you know, uh, made me think of that. Uh, I recently read, this was like my big early quarantine book, was Meet Me in the Bathroom, the oral history of uh, the Lower East Side music scene in um, like the late mm. 90s, early 2000s. And 
I forget who it was, but somebody had a quote in that book where they were talking about how there was this whole scene of people like like who came out of music schools and were 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 in bands at that point, and they were kind of like trashing that whole idea. And the quote that I remember was was all of that um, all of that technique gets in the way of of like rock music essentially which is just like it's an idea that i like it never occurred to me but i guess like kind of has roots like like the ramones couldn't play their instruments and like all that stuff so i don't know what 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 are you what is your what is your thought about that line of thinking i feel like it does kind of come up throughout like pop history i mean i'm a pop music fan so where i come from you have to sound somewhat proficient you don't have to sound (laughs) perfect yeah but you have to sound somewhat proficient um, so I, I don't think messy music sounds better than not messy music, mm. but I do think that there are some, some records that could use a little bit of, you know, pots thrown somewhere or, you know, one off keynote or something just to make it sound like it's not made by a machine. Right. You know what I'm saying? Or by a robot. Yeah. Um, I don't want, I don't want it to sound like, you know, a live replacement show or something like that, where shit is just like flying everywhere and people can't play properly or whatever. But I just like, you know, it's like when, uh, you know, when Mary J. Blige first started uh, making records, everybody, there were a lot of people who were like, oh, she can't sing. She hits bad notes. Like she does all this stuff. And I think the imperfection is really what sort of connects Mm. with 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 the people because there's again there's soul behind it right you know um you know i i I, and to use another example i actually like whitney houston's post drug abuse music better than i like her pre-drug abuse music wow see this is the hot take we have been dying for the entire show (laughs) (laughs) you know if you play the greatest love of all in my presence i am going to turn that shit off (laughs) <laughs> but I think once she sort of once there wasn't the pressure on to make everything perfect 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 mm. perfect I think she loosened up a little bit and I think her records actually they they were more soulful they yeah. came more from the heart as opposed to you know her just singing something because it was going to be a hit yeah yeah I I, I <clears throat> sort of along a similar line I I always remember this do you read those 33 and a third books ever I've got a, I've got a bunch of them. Yeah. Yeah. There's one about, again, we're back to 94, 1984. There's the one about born in the USA um, where there is a story that he tells in the book about how uh, around the time, around like 83, uh, Bruce and Steven were um, producing an album for Gary U.S. Bonds. And they like got in the studio and just like had a ball. They were just like writing songs for him and just like singing on stuff and just like adding, like basically, you know, just like doing the whole thing for this album. And the author makes this point that it was so much easier for them to get into that like kind of reckless, loose spirit when it didn't have their name on the album. Sure. And I just, that's, that really stuck with me of just like, there is a certain amount of like, perfectionism sometimes when it's your name on it versus like I just want to go and have a good time right and there's also not just expectation but uh what am I trying to say um there is 
Well, there is, it's also expectation, but it's, it's sort of the expectation to live up to your name. Totally. Like there's the, the, you're pleasing, you're trying to please the, your fans or the people that buy your records as much as you're trying to please yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, that I think leads to a lot of sort of kind of filing the, the, the gnarly parts out and trying to make something as perfect as possible. Yeah. Because you're not just trying to please yourself. You're trying to please a million or 10 million people. Yeah. <laughs> what's your final question? Final question. What's, what do you have? Final to plug? Jeopardy here. Oh, shit. Well, funny you should ask that question, Colby. Oh, really? Uh, I uh, current. Yes. <laughs> I currently host two podcasts. Um, one is called Detoxicity, and it is really, really important to me. Um, it is a podcast that centers around masculinity and we talk about everything from mental health to stage fright to raising a family to getting old. Uh, it's just like a, it. So each episode is a conversation with a different human being. And, uh, you know, we just kind of talk about their life and things that they've learned. I have had uh, uh, several comedians on uh, recently. Uh, I did an episode with Josh Gondelman, um, who is very famous for uh, uh, being a writer on Jesus and Mero. He's the only person I've interviewed so far with an Emmy. Um, wow. <laughs> I uh, just, I haven't published this yet, but I just uh, recorded an episode with Kevin McCaffrey, uh, who has written for Letterman. And, uh, you know, yeah, I, I've interviewed tons of musicians. I've got an episode coming up with my friend Jacob Slichter, who is a drummer for Semisonic. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, so it's just people talking about real life experience. And the goal is just to take all of that shit we learned as kids about toxic masculinity that you can't cry, that you can't have feelings, that you can't, uh, you know, um, um, that you can't do all of these things and sort of normalize them and push them to the forefront because I think that's how we create a better society. That's one podcast. The other one I do is a lot more sort of lighthearted. It's called FM to MTV. I do it with my friends, uh, Jeff Giles and Jason Hare, who both used to be music writers. We all met writing for a site called popdose.com. And it takes a look at the music, the music of our youth. It's like sort of 80s through early 90s. Each episode focuses on a different musician. Uh, we've done a, a Ray Parker Jr. episode. We did a, uh, uh, we've actually got an Elton John episode coming up. Oh, hell yeah. I yeah. can't wait to listen. We're, where we talk about 80s Elton. Yeah, we did uh, an episode on Gloria Stefan. Um, we've got one, I think the next one coming out is Lionel Richie. So it's just kind of all that sort of kind of sappy pop music from when we were kids. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we talk about that stuff in, in very music nerd depth. <laughs> um, and also, if you want to follow me on social media, I'm on Twitter uh, at TizMikeJoseph. I am on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy. Uh, so feel free to follow me. Hell yes. Mike Joseph, thanks for joining me today. Colby, thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. Hi, this is Jimmy. Well... That's the end of the music, but it's not the end of the show. For those of you computer literate parrot heads out there, stick this CD into your computer and you can see an enhanced video of what we do and what we say backstage behind the scenes.